You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash Film School. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. A legendary creator of 45 films, including Metropolis, M, The Big Heat, Fury, and The Blue Gardenia, Fritz Lang was known as the stereotypical, tyrannical German film director. With us today is Kevin Thomas, the legendary Los Angeles Times film critic who befriended Lang during his Hollywood years. Thomas hosts a film series at the American Cinematheque at the Arrow Theater. Kevin Thomas, welcome to Film School. Well, thank you. How are you doing today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing very well. You're up in Los Angeles now? Santa Monica. You live right next to the Aero Theater, is that right? Or pretty close uh, four to Four blocks. How long have you been going there? Uh, my monthly series has been going on since early 2006. Uh, I've been renewed for a second year. Excellent. When did you first encounter Fritz Lang? Do you remember the, the first time you... Uh, uh, yes. It was about 67 or 68. And our mutual friend, Pierre Ricciant, had come in from Paris, and he was shocked to realize I had never met Fritz. Mm -hmm. And so he took him up to the house on Summit Ridge, a lovely sort of promontory overlooking Pick there. Mm -hmm. Although Fritz and Mary Pickford were neighbors for over 40 years, they never met. That's when I met him, and I was very, very privileged. Uh, we yeah. became very, very close friends. He was really a great father figure to, to me. And when my father died early in 76, I told Fritz, I said, you've been more of a father to me than my own father. Oh. And that, that stopped him in his tracks. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah Fritz died later that year, the same yes. year. You said Pierre was his friend from France, did yeah. you say, from Paris? Yeah, now, Pierre is a filmmaker, and he is a oh, legendary film maven. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say publicist, but for example, you know, Clint Eastwood or Warren Beatty, they wouldn't open a picture in Paris without Fritz making all the arrangements. And Pierre has been uh, devoted to discovering important directors all over. I mean, it was Pierre who really launched Lino Broca, uh, the Filipino director, eminent Filipino director, to American audiences and to European audiences. He was very crucial in that. Yes, Pierre is uh, one of my oldest, dearest friends. I'm curious about Pierre's relationship to Fritz Lang, because uh, didn't uh, Fritz Lang spend some time in Paris very early on? Didn't, uh, Didn't he want to be an artist at first? Yes, he studied painting, and he was uh, he was a painter, but he was also, very early on, he designed posters for uh, cabaret artists and mm-hmm. uh, things like that. His father was an architect in Vienna. Those were his first interests, in the, always in the arts. And then, of course, World War I broke out, and he went into the Austro-Hungarian Imperial Army, where he was wounded, oh. and one of his eyes was damaged hmm. badly for the rest of his life. You know, he hmm. wore a patch over it much of the time. Could he see out of it, or was, he, was it just... Uh, I think it was pretty bad. I know uh, he wore ordinary glasses a lot of the time, so sometimes he would do, have the monocle. Mm-hmm. And he had been briefly blacklisted. He thinks it was um, Howard Hughes who was responsible for that. 
He had made a couple of pictures at RKO, and he had been out of work a dangerously long period of time, mm-hmm. like a year or so. He got a call from Harry Cohn, and Harry invited him over to Columbia to have lunch with him in the commissary. He asked himself, do I want this job or not? Mm-hmm. And he said, yes, I want this job. Mm-hmm. So he left the monocle at home and put on ordinary standard glasses. And the result was, of course, the big heat and human desire and beyond a reasonable doubt. His last three American films. The monocle would be too imposing. Uh... <laughs> yeah. One of uh, my colleagues in Paris described Fritz as a Roman ruin of a man, which is <laughs> wonderful. I mean, he was very, uh, he had a very imposing presence. He combed his hair straight back. If you dropped in in the morning, he would have kind of like a do-rag on, you know, <laughs> make sure it was slicked down. And he had wicked chalk-striped suits when he got up. He had been quite a lady killer in his day. He hated getting old like a, a passion, and that was one of the reasons he was very fond of saying, it's easy to get old, but hard to be old. <laughs> My friendship with Fritz was obviously one of the great treasures of my life. As time went by, I realized what a huge privilege, because I got to know a Fritz that apparently a lot of people did not get to know. Fritz was very conscientious in regard to me. He concerned himself with my health or where they're overworking. Despite failing eyesight, he would make a big deal of reading everything I wrote. And he was, you must come up to the house, and you will not like what I have to say. (laughs) But what he would do is, if he thought I had missed something in the review or something, it would spark a very profound philosophical discourse in the gentlest terms possible. He had a friend in London who clipped all the movie reviews of all the major papers in London and maybe the Manchester Guardian as well, you know, mm-hmm. and sent them to Fritz. Fritz religiously saved them to pass on to me. Mm-hmm. He felt that that would improve my style. God love him. Mm-hmm. I think at a certain point he realized I wasn't going to be much better than I already was, but he decided to accept me anyway. That was (laughs) his great gift. Now, Fritz could be quite formidable, and he could be really quite sarcastic. And sometimes, I, you know, I hate to say it, but I've seen him foolishly cruel to sometimes to certain people born out of a deep, frustration of getting old and not being able to work anymore and not being able to make quite the impression on the ladies. Although that never completely faded from the picture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm here to tell you. Yeah. Um, Pierre was very upset with Patrick McGillican's biography because he felt that it really portrayed Fritz as a tyrant. Yes. My influence, frankly, is, is fairly strong in the later portion of life. I think I was able to convince him that he could be very mellow and kind. And actually, he did concern himself with welfare of others.
He was deeply concerned with Peter Lorre throughout Peter Lorre's life and Peter Lorre's very complicated family situation. He was very, very concerned and actively involved in, in trying to do everything he could, I do believe. It's too complicated a yeah. <laughs> story well, to go uh, into. We're speaking with Kevin Thomas, the legendary Los Angeles Times film critic, about uh, his friendship with Fritz Lang, the legendary director. Just curious here about uh, Peter Lorre. You're mentioning him. I read somewhere where Fritz Lang considered M to be his finest work. Did he ever say that to you, and did he ever say why? You know, when you become friends with someone like that, Uh you don't ask so many questions. You may ask questions in response to a subject that they have brought up. You know, you move beyond the interview, you know, by saying, I would not be surprised if Fritz thought that M was his high-water mark achievement. But I can't remember him saying specifically any film. The one thing he was fond of saying was that he had changed, with the passing of time, he had changed his opinion of Metropolis. For many years, he thought, to use his word, corny, you know, the uh, the heart must be the mediator between the, the hand and the mind. He thought that was sort of sentimental crap. But as he grew older, he thought, no, that really is the only answer. Yeah. That in relations between management and labor and democratic institutions and leadership, that ultimately that compassion is the ingredient in that equation. So he decided that that was not corny after all, and that shifted his opinion of that film. As he grew older, he thought, well, you know, maybe it wasn't so bad after all. And he mentioned that very frequently. What sort of impact did his time in, uh, in service in World War One have on his outlook on life and on his films? Well, I'll tell you, it cannot have been without its impact about mortality and the workings of fate. After all, I mean, this meant the end of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And it cannot have not influenced his whole view of the world. However, on a practical basis, the long convalescence when he was in the military hospital, prodded him to turn his hand to writing, where he had concentrated mainly on painting and posters and travel and sort of being a vivant. Mm -hmm. This is where he started writing his first scripts, Mm -hmm. decided he would try his hand at script writing. You know, when he got out of the hospital, I think it was Joe Mai that he went to, you know, Dekla Bioskop, or which became part of UFA, or whatever. He sold his first scripts, and Joe Mai directed them, and then shortly thereafter, he got a chance to direct, and he directed for the next 45 years. Well, what do you think Fritz Lang's influences were on the film world? It's always really hard to be tremendously specific yeah. um, when you talk about influences, but He's very, very crucial in the crime film, like the underworld film, like Dr. Mabuza with the underworld genius. And the whole 
a relation between underworld crime and political corruption. Then you see a picture like Spies, for example, later in the 20s, and you realize you can trace James Bond all the way back to that. A uh, woman in the moon in space travel, the, the great Willie, Willie Lai collaborated with, with him, and uh, they showed the moon landing, and of course it was a silent picture. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how do they convey that the spaceship is preparing to land? They came up with the countdown. <laughs> Fritz always felt that they should get credit for inventing the countdown. <laughs> you know, it was, you know, like 10, 9, 8, you know, yeah. you can see the print today. And then, of course, Metropolis is one of the great futuristic views, uh, visioning of the future. Yeah. He certainly had a tremendous influence on film noir, and he was responsible for a number of film noir classics himself. If I were to say to you that Fritz Lang was more influential than Alfred Hitchcock, would you agree with me? To that, I will reply what Claude Chabrol said so famously. <laughs> Without Lang, there would be no Hitchcock. I'm looking at <laughs> right now my autographed picture of Fritz on my wall, and underneath it, is a picture of Alfred Hitchcock, a photo that he inscribed to my friend Mae West, and which I inherited. It is Chabrol's famous remark that has a lot to do with the fact that Fritz's picture is on top of Hitchcock's picture, although let me hasten, hasten to declare and proclaim, I think, that Hitchcock's one of the greatest directors who ever lived. Oh, absolutely. It, it does nothing but elevate Hitchcock to, to, yes. to, to compare him to Lang. Yes. Mm -hmm. Hitchcock was a very, very, very greatest director there ever will be. Uh, let's get back to Pierre Recient and what he thought about Patrick McGillian's biography of Fritz Lang. I think the title was The Nature of the Beast. What, what, do you, what do you say to McGillian's remark that Lang had sadistic tendencies on the set? Pierre was really upset with Patrick's book. He felt that a lot of people were more sophisticated than Patrick gave them credit to, that if he was a stern taskmaster on the set, that they would be smart enough to understand all of this. Now, this is an interesting corollary to that. One of my favorite people and one of everybody's favorite people was the late Roddy McDowell. Yeah. Nobody who knew Roddy could be anything but miss him forever. He was an incredibly special person. What made Roddy special was his capacity to appreciate fellow artists. He could hold forth on so many actors and directors and writers with such passion and admiration and enthusiasm. But it wasn't merely gush. You could come away understanding all the more what their particular gifts were. Mm -hmm. And I thought, Roddy, Roddy, will you please write about this? You're so great on this subject. You said, oh, Kevin, I can't do that. That's like dunning out on one's stories, you know? Mm -hmm. Anyway, 
when Roddy was about 12 years old and had come to Hollywood just around the time World War II broke out in Europe, he had been a child actor already in, in England. And his mother was a big movie fan and pretty sophisticated. So when Roddy got cast in Manhunt, very importantly, uh, Fritz's first uh, film with Joan Bennett, and of course, Walter Pigeon, the star. Uh, Ronnie told me, even at 12 years old, he understood that Fritz was a really major figure, and that it was a great honor and so on to be working with Fritz and so on. Fritz did not have a lot of qualms about having been tough with people over the years, but he was terribly concerned. It ate away from him for a long, long years that he had not been as kind and compassionate to Barbara Stanwyck when he was directing her in Clash by Night, and she was going through her divorce with Robert Taylor. And this bugged him. You know, he was like Capra and all the other directors who always... Directors love Barbara Stanwyck for her enthusiasm and her talent and her unstinting professionalism. And Fritz would go on and on of how generous Barbara Stanwyck was to Marilyn Monroe, because that was Marilyn Monroe's first big dramatic role, and she was wildly insecure. And she was also the subject of huge publicity. The nude calendar had just broken... He said the press that descended on those, you know, were really quite crude and unkind. And, and, you know, they didn't look twice at Barbara. You know, oh, well, we're not interested in that old Brock. We're interested in this this blonde with the bosom only. They were, you know, mm-hmm. used rather cruder language than that. Yeah, I'm sure. And he knew that Barbara was very well aware of that. But she didn't let it phase her, and it didn't stint her unstinting kindness to Marilyn throughout the shooting. Well, as it turns out, X number of years later, Barbara and Roddy were making a television film together. This is so typically typical of Roddy's kindness. He arranged to have Fritz visit the set and have lunch with him and Barbara. I'm not the least surprised. It was a grand moment when he stepped on the set. And Barbara threw her arms around him and just was thrilled, and she just treated him royally. That was one of the great redeeming moments of his life, mm-hmm. is that he felt that if Barbara had been the least bit upset with him, she had understood him and brushed it off years before. It was not petty, or, or maybe she, maybe she didn't even feel that he was not as sympathetic. Mm-hmm. But he talked about it all. I was not kind enough to Barbara. Yeah, <laughs> to Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> so after Fritz died, Roddy and I were talking. Roddy smiled and he looked slightly. He's, oh, but Kevin. Fritz was a monster on the set. <laughs> but see, people like Ronnie and people <laughs> like that, and especially dear Joan Bennett. My God, uh, there was never a more loyal friend or actress on the face of this earth. 
uh, than Joan Bennett. Oh my God! You know he he had taken her to the heights of her career at Scarlet Street and Women in the Window and Manhunt. They made a, a fourth picture, which was not so so successful, but that did not really interfere. They were so disappointed in that fourth film. Name uh, <laughs> I forgot. Uh, I, I've seen it. It's, it's not one of Fritz's successes, okay. and he would be the first just to, to, to agree uh, that it was a disaster. I think it kind of maybe temporarily put a strain on their friendship. Mm-hmm. Well, I am here to tell you, in the last six months of Fritz's life or so, or the last year or so, when he was in a lot of pain and his whole system was just shutting down on him, and he was really miserable 24-7. Up to the day he died, Joan and her husband, who was a writer and I think a newspaper editor or publisher in New England, David Wilde, they would, on a weekly basis, they would write him the funniest, funniest, (laughs) most loving letters. I don't care how he felt and how pessimistic he felt and how badly he wanted to shed the mortal coil and all that. Up to virtually the last day of his life, those letters that they would send to him would bring a smile to his face, unfailingly. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, that is. That's a great story. You mentioned that Fritz was the ladies' man. Was there one woman in his life that stood out above all others? There's no question that Lily Latte was yes. the most important woman in his life, and she was with him for 43 years. She had, was married when she went to live with Fred. She came from a wealthy conservative family, and it was a huge scandal. After she died, her cousin's son, Tommy, said, my parents were the only people who continued to accept Lily. It was such a big public scandal, yeah. and so on. Lily was a very beautiful woman. Uh, she had gone to private school in Berlin with Marlena Dietrich. Fritz and Marlena and Lily uh, had a very complicated friendship all their lives. <laughs> and um, Why do you laugh? <laughs> well, because, I mean, these German expatriates were really... They were so mm. proud and courageous mm. and individualistic yeah. and also outrageous, you know. I mean, they they really lived their lives. Yes. I mean, when I became close to Lily and Fritz, I, I, I understood what <laughs> European sophistication was. Lily was greatly in love with uh, Fritz more in the long run more than he was with her. He would say to me, he'd say, I do not love Lily. I like Lily, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, there were so many, you know, I mean, he was briefly engaged to Virginia Gilmore, who later married to uh, Earl Brenner when she was a starlet at Fox. I think that Miriam Hopkins and Kay Francis were, were among his conquests. And then there was a some girlfriend in Washington, D.C. Now, how that worked out, Uh-oh. I don't know. <laughs> Political connections? <laughs> and then in the late 30s, when Doug Fairbanks and Marlena were having their big romance, Fritz 
and Lily spent a lot of time with them. Characteristically, Marlena was very generous with Lily when they arrived in Hollywood, lent her gowns and jewels and things like that. But Lily later confessed that she had a, a, a great romance from some fellow in, in Germany. She never went into great detail about uh-huh. him, but that was an abiding passion. She had a big shipboard romance with Leopold Stokowski before he married uh, Gloria Vanderbilt. She also had a romance with Walter Slezak in his skinny period. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, what can I say? They were sophisticated Europeans. At the end of the day, at the end of their lives, it was the two of them. But uh, Lily really did. As time went by and the years went by, she truly devoted her life to him. One very wonderful lady, uh, Bobby Lemley, that was her nickname, her name was Bertha, but the wife of Max Lemley, the founder of the Lemley Theaters here. The Lemleys were great friends of Fritz and Lily. In fact, in the brief sojourn that they were in Paris in 33, 34, before Selznick brought them to Hollywood. Bobby actually met Fritz in Paris, but they became friends in Los Angeles and with with Max. And Bobby said to me one time, a wonderful, wonderful remark, wonderful telling remarks, he said, once Fritz had an army at his command, now he only has Lily. (laughs) And he did make her jump through the the hoops, there's no question. And inevitably, Marlena and Fritz had a... A snack. A romance (laughs) that was absolutely, you know, doomed from day one of two strong personalities like that. I'd like to have been a fly on the wall there. Yeah, well, he would always say, Fritz was always fair, like... Taya von Harbaugh, his second wife, who was his great collaborator on Metropolis and his, his classic uh, German silence of the golden age of German cinema, Taya wrote many of those films, and then she novelized them and so on. When they split, he discovered that she was a card-carrying Nazi and an unrepentant one. This wow. shocked him deeply, but he felt that it would be dishonest to not give her credit for her contributions to his films, that it was inescapable and undeniable. She wrote the scripts, and he could not deny that, and to his credit, he didn't deny it, even though her politics that really he found abhorrent, of course. So therefore, along those lines, he would any time he ever mentioned Marlena, he always prefaced it by, Marlena is a great star. You know, credit where yes. credit is due. I never say, she betrayed me right <laughs> and left. <laughs> and then one day he made a hilarious remark that I don't know whether I can get away with it on radio. Uh-oh. <laughs> so anyway, it absolutely you. had to do <laughs> with love- it had to do with Hemingway and what she was prepared to do for Hemingway. Oh. And the way he said it was so hilarious, I yeah. fell on the floor. In fact, the first time I was in the house after Fritz died, and Lily and I went to the bar to have a drink, his absence was 
so overwhelming. I mean, yeah. in the house. It was like a bubble had to be burst. I knew that I had to say something totally outrageous. And so I made this rather graphic remark that he had to say about Mar- Marlena and Hemingway yeah. and how he did not care what she did with him, but he was very specific about what she did do with him. Well, there you go. So I said it, and I delivered it Fritz's accent and everything. And Lily <laughs> laughed and laughed and Lord laughed God. and laughed. And then she had a smile of triumph on her face. She said, well, Kevin, if he told you that, he must have told you how he and Marlena broke up. And, of course, you know, this was a setup because what she had to say, he never would have told me. I, I, I said, oh, no, Lily, he never told me how she was. Oh, well, they were in bed. Marlena got bored. She picked up the phone and dialed another man. <laughs> On that, Kevin Thomas, we've yeah, unfortunately run out of time. I truly appreciate the time you've given us to talk about Fritz Lang. Kevin well, Thomas, he was a great man. Yes. I loved him dearly. I was privileged to know him. Thank you, Kevin Thomas for being on Film School. We look forward to talking to you in the future, and uh, we'll remind all our listeners to get down to the, uh, to the Arrow Theater to see your film series. Thank okay. you once again. Bye. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at kuci.org slash filmschool.